I'm giving you 15 minutes. You will begin with your understanding of the Bible and you will end with your understanding of the return of Jesus. And in between, you will talk about all the major doctrines of the Christian faith in a way that will make sense for your life and the lives of others. Can you do it? Let me help you join us for this series that we're doing on Sunday night called Doctrines for Living. Well, let's talk about uh, the Bible, the Word of God. And just in saying those words, we're saying something very significant. I did not say, let's talk about the Bible as the Word of God. I said, let's talk about the Bible, the Word of God. I did not say, let's talk about the Bible that contains the Word of God. I said, let's talk about the Bible, the Word of God. Throughout the history of the church, uh, those who have preceded us for thousands of years have talked about the Word of God in three senses, and these three senses intersect, interconnect, interrelate, and help constitute life in the church. Foundationally, to talk about the Word of God is to talk about the written Word of God, the Bible. When you are holding your Bible in your hand, you are holding the Word of God. Wherever this book speaks, God speaks. This is the absolute truth of God. We're going to talk later in our evening and then again on December the 6th about all that it means when we say the Bible is the written Word of God. But the Bible, as the written Word of God, the Bible, the written Word of God, on page after page, line after line, is pointing us to Jesus. You and I believe with every fiber of our being that Jesus is alive. That he is living tonight. He is here among us in the presence of his Holy Spirit. He is here whenever we open the Bible to teach the Bible. So the Bible on every page, through every paragraph, through every proclamation, points us to the living word of God who is Jesus. Now we read the Bible, we hear the word of God. The Word of God, as the written Word of God, points us to Jesus. But we also have the incredible privilege of speaking the Word of God. We have the oral proclamation of God's Word that is found every time someone is preaching and teaching the Word of God. Now, I want to be very careful here. Not all preaching is the preaching of the Word of God. Not all teaching is the teaching of the Word of God. There are lots and lots of churches in our land that have preachers who preach who don't preach the Word of God. Now, I'm not talking here specifically about preachers who are preaching heresy. We've got a lot of that, too, throughout the United States of America. I'm talking about preachers who, when they preach, are preaching topical sermons that have little or no connection with the Word of God. They're just talking about something about which they have some settled opinion. Whatever that is, it's not preaching the Word of God. When they teach, they're teaching on subjects of importance to them. Whatever that is, that is not the teaching of the Word of God. When it comes to the spoken Word of God, this is how you measure. Now, I'm a preacher about to tell you how to measure the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. There are four things. Number one, the text. When you listen to a preacher, you should ask, is he preaching and teaching the Bible? You should want an answer to that question. And the way you know whether or not he is preaching or teaching the Bible is that he's read a text and his sermon is tied directly to that text. And he's not only speaking from that text, 
He's showing you in that text as he preaches where he gets what he is saying. There are some things, for example, in John 17, in the prayer of Jesus, that are completely different from what many Baptists have been taught to believe. And so I was... I was insistent this morning, at least as I prepared during the week, that I wanted you to see it. I didn't want you to take my word for it. I wanted you to see it. And to see it in the text in and through the words of Jesus. So if a preacher is preaching and teaching the word of God, he is preaching and teaching the Bible. And when you listen to him You can listen to him knowing that he's read the text. Now he's explaining the text to you. And he's showing you in the text where he got what he is saying to you. That's the first thing. Second thing is true preaching in the church has always been what's called expositional preaching. That is the preacher has one purpose. Explain the meaning of the text. Apply the meaning of the text to our lives. That's, that's real, genuine, biblically sound, biblically faithful preaching. If you go to hear someone preach and they're not doing that, then they're doing something other than preaching. They may be great communicators. They may pull at the emotions of your heart. They may stir your souls. They're dangerous because they're not declaring what is the absolute truth of God. The third thing is that we must be clear about the manner of preaching and teaching the Word of God. We must must have those who preach and teach the Word of God who engage seriously with the text. That is, they spend a lot of time looking at, listening to the Word of God in preparation to preach. I remember when I was just starting out as a preacher before I ever went to seminary to study uh, primarily the languages of the Bible, Greek and Hebrew, uh, I was at a conference once where I got to not only listen to the late, great W.A. Criswell, who was 40 years, was the preacher, pastor at First Baptist Church, Dallas, Texas, I got to be in a Q&A with him. And I was able to hear a question asked, that I wanted to ask, but I was too young and too shy and too, frankly, scared of W.A. Criswell to ask him any question. But someone asked, Dr. Criswell, how long should a preacher spend in preparation to preach? And his answer was, as long as it takes to demonstrate that you treat seriously the Word of God, that is at least 20 hours a week in preparation to preach a sermon. That's a lot of investment of time and energy. But when a preacher is doing that, he's saying to God and he's saying to his people, I don't treat your word lightly. I take your word seriously because all we've got is the word of God. We have no other authority. The preacher has no authority within himself. None. And you have no authority within yourself. The only authority we have is an objective external authority that is the Bible that is given to us that we call and rightly call the Word of God. Do you know, I'm always hesitant to say these things, but they need to be said in our day because we've got so many preachers and so many pulpits that do not take preaching seriously. And they're not prepared to preach because they've not been equipped to preach. Because they've not taken preaching seriously enough to get the training they need to be able to preach. Uh, do you know that until the middle, uh, until the early 20th century, there was no such thing as a preacher standing in a pulpit to preach the Word of God who did not at least have some ability in the languages of the Bible to get back to the original languages in order to understand more clearly and completely what the Bible really says. Now you can just go across Burke County and ask preachers and churches in Burke County, not just Baptists but others, 
How much facility do you have in the original languages of Scripture that enable you to really preach and teach God's Word? And I can tell you what you hear. Because we don't take, we don't take it seriously. We do here, praise God. You do here, praise God. But most churches don't. And it shows in our churches because we've got people in our churches that really don't know even what they believe about the Word of God. I want you to know what the Bible teaches about the Word of God. As Baptists, we do our work together in this church under the confession of faith known as the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. This is what the Baptist of Faith and Message 2000 says about the Bible. The Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired and is God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all Scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us, and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct Creeds and religious opinions should be tried. This last line I put in all caps because it was added in 2000. All scripture is a testimony to Christ who is himself the focus of divine revelation. Now let me tell you why this last line is added because this last line is very important. Prior to the year 2000, the most up-to-date Baptist faith and message was composed and passed by the messengers of the Southern Baptist Convention in 1963. And the Baptist faith and message statement in 1963 had everything in it that's here except for the last line. The last line read like this. Jesus Christ is the criterion by which all Scripture is to be interpreted. Now, what's wrong with that? Just let me just, let me, I, I'm asking. I want you to respond. <laughs> let me just say there's a lot wrong with it. But what's wrong with it? Does it sound good? The answer would be yes. Is it good? No. What's wrong with it? Jesus Christ is the criterion. That's... that's that's one thing that's very wrong with it. So, again, talk like you're talking to Eric at home. Say it again, because that's, that's, those two things together, that's the problem. It's a huge problem. Yes. Exactly, exactly. The problem is that our view, our personal views of Jesus Christ becomes the criterion by which we interpret Scripture. So this is the kind of thing that happens. This, is, this happened, this line was put in the Baptist Faith and Message in 1963 to appease and accommodate liberals in the Southern Baptist Convention. 
So liberals in 1963, now we're not talking about 2020. We're talking about two, 1963, there were liberals in the Southern Baptist Convention that said, we've got to find a place in the Southern Baptist Convention for our churches to call women as pastors. How can we do that? We can put in our statement on Scripture a line that says, Jesus Christ is the criterion by which all Scripture is to be interpreted. From 1963 to 2000, there was a huge movement that said, Look, there is no biblical warrant for excluding women from being pastors in churches because Jesus loved and accepted women as a part of his ministry. And they were his followers. And if he accepted them, his church must accept them in positions of leadership. And you can just go down the list of issues. That what we began to say was that the Bible, and here's the bottom line, the Bible can't stand on its own. So our view of Jesus becomes the criterion for interpreting Scripture. Have you ever heard somebody pray like this? I pray in the name of Jesus who is the Christ. You ever heard that? That's a problem. Because what that prayer just did in the end was separate Jesus from the Christ. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. We have to be very careful because you and I are living in a day increasingly where many churches and many denominations will say, We believe the Bible. But that's not enough. We better know what it is they're saying when they say, we believe the Bible. So just go back to the example that I used. If someone says, I interpret the Bible through Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ accepted women into his ministry, so I believe that the Bible teaches that women can serve as pastors. Do does that person that says that and Al Wright believe the same thing about the Bible? No. Can we work cooperatively in gospel ministry if we have those kind of divergent views about something that I believe is very fundamental to what the Bible teaches? So, that's why we have to be very, very uh, clear about what we're saying when we say that the Bible is indeed the Word of God. So, let's talk for a minute about some approaches to the Bible. Some approaches to the Bible. And one of the things I, I want you to see is that this first approach up here, that is the, what, what approach? Liberal. There are none in this room. If there are, then you're, you're going, you'd be pretty uncomfortable. This approach, this approach, the fundamentalist approach to the Bible, the liberal approach to the Bible are very similar. They're not that far apart. So here's the liberal approach. The Bible is a book that was written by, man, written by men struggling, seeking to understand God. So when a liberal reads the Bible, he's reading a human book written by human beings who are seeking to understand God, which means that when a liberal reads the Bible, this is what they conclude. Those writers got some things right and they got some things wrong. Now, who's going to figure out what they got right and what they got wrong? If you're liberal, you get to do that. Every liberal gets to make up his or her own mind about what the Bible uh, teaches about what is right and wrong. 
Liberalism uh, created real crises in our culture. They still do. So a new movement began out of liberalism in the late 19th into the 20th century called neo-orthodoxy. That's the name of it. You don't need to remember that. But this is what you need to remember. A neo-orthodox person believes the Bible. They don't believe the Bible is the Word of God. They believe the Bible contains the Word of God. You can find the Word of God in the Bible. Now, what does that imply? You can find a lot of other stuff in the Bible, and not all the Bible is the Word of God. That's exactly what it implies. And there are some things in the Bible that we just need to toss out because they don't uh, come within the framework of the Word of God. Third view, third approach to the Bible is the approach of the Roman Catholic Church. Roman Catholic Church, if you were to ask any authority in the Roman Catholic Church, do you believe in the authority of the Bible? What would they say? Absolutely. Unequivocally. And you would say, well, I go down there to the First Baptist Church in Waynesboro, Georgia, and our preacher said y'all don't believe in the absolute authority of the Bible. Because in the Roman Catholic Church, there is an authority that trumps the authority of the Bible. What is it? The, the, the Pope and the teaching of the church. The traditions of the church uh, have greater power and greater authority in the church than the teaching of the Bible. So you're talking to a Roman Catholic and you think you're going to be clever and you're going to talk to them about purgatory and you're going to say something that's absolutely right. Purgatory isn't in the Bible. What are they going to say? It's in our church teaching. And it's been a part of our tradition for thousands of years. And our authority doesn't come only from the Bible. It comes from the Bible as interpreted by tradition. Now we as Protestants and Baptists, we begin to swell up with pride and we say, hey, the Bible's our only authority. You start reading, studying, preaching, and teaching the Bible where it challenges traditional Baptist distinctives, you know how much trouble you'll get into? Because even in Baptist life, we can honor and love and adore our traditions more than we do the truth of God. That's why we have to say the only authority we have is the Bible. And we will test all of our traditions by the truth of God. Conservative evangelical is where most of us would fit. Conservative evangelicals say the Bible is the Word of God. Now, we add some qualifiers, as we should. Uh, you've heard these a lot. We, we say the Bible is the inerrant, infallible, fully sufficient Word of God. What we say about the Bible is the Bible is verbal, plenary inspiration. Verbal. You know what that means? Every word in the Bible is given by whom? God. There are no extra words in the Bible. There are no extraneous words in the Bible. There are no words in the Bible that were not given by God. Verbal. Every word matters. When I'm preparing to preach a sermon or to teach a Bible study, I take my Bible, my Greek Bible, and I circle every word that has some significance in that passage. Sometimes it's three, sometimes it's ten. I look up every one of those words, and I research every one of those words. Why? Because there are no wasted words in the Bible. And every word is important. And every word is breathed out by God. Last Sunday I mentioned that the word for church in the New Testament, the Greek word ekklesia, is found 110 times in the New Testament. Now, I have people say to me, you know, I, I'm not a member of First Baptist Church. I come there a lot, but I'm not a member, but I'm a member of the universal church. 
Well, if that's true, the Bible, if the Bible addresses that, then you would expect to find a lot of references in the Bible to the universal church. You find almost none, none 108 of 110 references to the church in the New Testament refer to the local church, the church at Thessalonica, the church at Ephesus, the church at Corinth, the church at Rome, the church at Jerusalem. To belong to the church is to belong to a local church. The universal church doesn't have an address. You can't find it. That, that is a misrepresentation that uh, comes out of a misunderstanding of what is a fundamental word. Verbal, plenary means the whole thing. <laughs> the Bible is given by God from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, the whole thing. And it belongs together. And inspiration means it's breathed out by God. Now, we believe, I'm going to come back to this word later, but we believe in what is called concurrence. Now, what this means is God is the ultimate author of Scripture, but he used human beings to write his word. And when he chose the human beings to write his word, he chose to speak through their personalities. So when he chose Paul, he didn't say to Paul, Hey, Paul, I want to use you, but you're just a funnel. So open your mind. I'm going to pour my word through you, and I will, I will not employ your personality at all. No, no, no. God used human beings just like us. What was Peter before he became a follower of Jesus and wrote two books in the New Testament? What was he? He had a common trade. Every person that God chose were people just like us. That's so encouraging to me. And God spoke to them in such a way that he didn't violate their personalities, but he spoke through their personalities to give us his word. That's why, by the way, we have four Gospels. If the point of it was just to pour as through a funnel... The truth about Jesus from birth to resurrection. Why do we need four Gospels? How many do you need? You just need one. But every one of those Gospel writers is a unique human being who's writing from a unique perspective. Concurrence means that the Bible, every book of the Bible, has two authors. A human author and God. Who's the ultimate author of all the Bible? God. God speaking through communicating through human beings. Now, the liberal view of the Bible comes down to this one thing. The Bible exists, this is the liberal view, the, the Bible exists to communicate to us that we need to love God and we need to love people. So a liberal would say, you can be a follower of Jesus and a biblically faithful Christian if you love God and love people. Now, there are professing Christians who would say, well, what's wrong with that? Because there's vastly more to the teaching of Scripture than that. That doesn't encapsulate. Now, here are the fundamentalists. Fundamentalists believe in what's called mechanical dictation theory. That is, that God dictated his word using human beings simply is what I said before, funnels. And what you have in the Bible is a book of legislation. The Bible is given to us to speak to us in imperatives about how we are to behave. The fundamentalist view consists... Uh, four things. Number one, it's totally propositional. It just, the Bible's an unending series of propositions that we are to receive, we are to believe, and we are to obey. Secondly, the context of the Bible is diminished. The context doesn't matter because what we're reading is legalistic propositions that are to shape our behavior. Thirdly, the Bible is to be read and heard only in the imperative voice. 
The Bible is about what we are to do only. And fourthly, the Bible then becomes a very, very legalistic document. We don't believe that. Because we believe the heart of the Bible is the grace of God to us in Jesus Christ that transforms our lives, that takes us from being sinners and moves us toward being saints. Just think about David. Just think about David. David is the one God chose to whom God says there will never lack one to sit on your throne, and the fulfillment of that promise was who? Jesus. Aren't you, glad, aren't you glad that God chose David? He chose someone who was pure and perfect. He was an adulterer. He was a murderer. God wants to communicate to us that the Bible is not about being a rule book that we are to obey It's about the revelation of the greatness of God who loves his people so much that he sends his son to take upon himself our sins so that we can be forgiven and set free and by the power of the Holy Spirit seek to live our lives in the fullness that God gives us as we seek to live faithfully in love for and loyalty to Jesus. Many of you began your Christian life as legalistic fundamentalist, and the Bible for you was a rule book. That's how I began my life. You know what that view does? It kills every fiber of joy in your soul. Because it's such a wrong view. It is as wrong a view of the Bible as this is. Love God and love one another. Keep all the rules and keep them faithfully, which which none of us can do. I don't believe this is a Christian view. 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 This is the only biblically faithful view of the Bible that is found among those who profess to be Christians. Now let's talk about issues. Issues that we've got to address in order to understand what the Bible is. We've got to address issues of inspiration, infallibility, and inerrancy. These three issues address the source of authority. Where does the authority of the Bible come from? It comes from inspiration, infallibility, and inerrancy. And then we've got to address the scope of authority. We've got to talk about canonicity, which is simply to talk about how the books of the Bible got there in the first place and why we consider them authoritative and sufficiency. Is the Bible sufficient to address the issues of every people in every period throughout all of time? And we begin with the issue of inspiration, and to begin with the issue of inspiration is to go back to the 16th century in the Reformation and recognize that during the days of the Reformation, the primary issue was how we're made right with God, and the Reformers, looking into the Word of God, determined that we are made right with God by faith alone. This is called historically the material principle of the Reformation. This is the substance of the Reformation. Now the reason this is important is if before the Reformation what the church taught was you are made right with God by obeying the laws of the church. Keep the rules of the church that the church prescribes for you and the church will preserve your soul forever. And everybody believed that. Until Martin Luther, hidden away in a monastery, studying the Word of God, teaching Romans and Galatians, 
was brought to the awareness by God through His Spirit that we're not saved by listening to the church. We're saved by listening to God and receiving the gift of being forgiven by the grace of God based on what Jesus did on the cross and receiving that by faith. Now this principle that gave birth to the Reformation, justification by faith alone, flows out of what was a priority impetus for the Reformation, and it's the Latin word ad fontis. Uh, the, the Reformation was driven by a desire to get back to the sources. Ad fontis means back to the fountain, back to the fountain. Now, in the 16th century, when people read the Bible, which they didn't much because they didn't have access to the Bible, People didn't go to church to study the Bible. They went to church to listen to the priest tell them what the Bible said. They didn't read it on their own because they weren't allowed to read it on their own. But the Reformation gave birth to this movement. Let's go back to the Bible. And let's not go back to the Latin Bible. Let's go back to the Hebrew Bible and the Greek Bible. And let's hear what God has said in the original languages. And that listening to the word of God gave birth to a principle that in Latin is known as sola scriptura. Now this principle refers to the Bible being read, studied, and interpreted in its original language and interpreted in a way that is in keeping with the faithful interpretation of the Bible that began in the late first century and is preserved throughout the centuries. We pay attention to the Word of God as it is, and we pay attention to how the Word of God has been faithfully interpreted through the centuries. In the 16th century, in the midst of the stronghold or the stranglehold that the Roman Catholic Church had on people everywhere, through their papal edicts and the teaching of the church, men who were raised up by God to begin to study the Word of God came to the awareness that the Bible teaches that every local church only has two offices in the church that are ordained of God. Elders and deacons. And the primary role of the elders is to have at least one person among the elders who will be the primary teacher for the church, and that person is called poimenos, our pastor. And that pastor has as his primary priority the study of the Word of God so as to teach the people the Word of God. That's his priority. And again, I'm so grateful for this church because you have no idea how many churches have pastors that don't really preach and teach the Word of God because they're not given time by their people to study the Word of God. So what is to be their primary priority is lost in the midst of business and being other things that have nothing to do with being a preacher and teacher of God's Word. John Calvin in the, late, uh, in the middle 16th century added an office that he believed should be in place. And he added that office because so many preachers were being called to preach, even in the 16th century, that were not equipped with the gifts that they needed, particularly in languages, to study the Word of God. So he added the office of teacher. The church needs teachers who will spend time in the languages understanding the Word of God so they can then teach pastors. That eventually emerged into what we know today as seminaries to train pastors in order to equip them to better be preachers and teachers of the Word of God. Do you see here that throughout the history of the church, there has been 
this attempt to diminish the importance of the Bible, and yet in the midst of that, that importance of Scripture could not be snuffed out. Because the church has no hope. We have no hope if we compromise our commitment to the absolute authority of the Bible. We have no hope. We're left adrift on a sea, and the storms of the sea will overwhelm us. We have no word to give if it's not the word of God. So we must, we must come to a clear understanding of what we mean by inspiration, what we mean by infallibility, what we mean by inerrancy. So let's talk about inspiration. I was praying in my prayer time this week and one of the things that hit me one day is that if you, and I'm so hesitant to share this, but I think it's important to share. If you study the history of First Baptist Church Waynesboro from January 8, 1880 when we started, The, the original pastor of this church was a biblical inerrantist. He loved the Word of God. His name was W.L. Kilpatrick. And he taught the Word of God. After him, there were almost no biblical inerrantists in the pulpit of this church. There was one. One. He didn't last long. <laughs> because this church came to a place in the turn of the century into the 1960s and 70s where it was not faithful to biblical inerrancy. And yet God preserved this church. And God protected this church. And God kept this church alive through some spiritually dark times. And what got me when I was praying is that I know why that happened. I know. Because there were some women in this church who loved Jesus with all their hearts. And they knew what they had in the pulpit. But they knew the power of the prayer closet. And they went to their prayer closets. And they met in small groups. All of them are in glory now for the most part. And they prayed for God to bring renewal to this church. Don't let this church go. The integrity of the word of God in terms of its inspiration and inerrancy... It's so central to God that God will not let his church go. God will bring revival. I'm telling you, God will either bring revival and renewal to a church that's lost its way, or by his grace, he will close the doors of that church forever. Do you know that all over the Southern Baptist Convention today, there are churches that have lost their way. Southern Baptist churches drifted into liberalism. They lost their way. They've closed their doors the North American Mission Board brings a young man into that closed church with the wife, and that, that young man is committed to the inerrancy of Scripture, to expositional preaching of the Word of God, and he takes his Bible and goes with his wife into that now-dead church, doors closed, and the doors are open. He starts preaching the Word of God. In some places, the only congregation he's got is his wife. And I can tell you story after story all over the United States in large cities to small towns where God has resurrected churches because finally somebody took the Bible seriously enough to treat it in the way it ought to be treated. It's happening all over our country. Praise God for that. Inspiration. What do we mean by inspiration? It has to do with authority. 
And the question of authority is tied to the question of authorship. The two words you can see author in both of them. Now what we believe that we've already talked about is dual authorship, concurrence. God speaks through human persons with personalities just like ours without violating their personalities or compromising the integrity of his word. What we believe when we say inspiration is the Bible is the word boom dei. It's the word of God or it's the vox dei. It is the voice of God where the Bible speaks, God speaks. We believe in verbal, plenary inspiration. Now, just to wrap up tonight and make a transition for our next time, go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. I want to set the context here. We're not going to get to the main meat of this passage. We're just going to set the context. And the context is found in the first nine verses, and then we're going to make the transition to verse 10. 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days... Remember that in the Bible, it's very clear, the last days began with the coming of Jesus. We've been in the last days since Jesus came. We will be in them until Jesus comes again. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. And then he describes what the last days will be like for people will be lovers of self. That is the first thing. We will value ourselves and we will value the teaching that teaches us to love ourselves. We will value that above all else. We will be lovers of money. Not lovers of God, not lovers of the Word of God, not lovers of the Church of God, lovers of self, lovers of money, and that will make itself known in these things. We will be proud. We will be arrogant. We will be abusive. Children will be disobedient to their parents. We will be ungrateful, unholy. We will be heartless. We will be unappeasable. We will be slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, Swollen with conceit. So we will be lovers of self, lovers of money, and it will manifest itself in those ways. <clears throat> and then look at the next words, uh, just at the end of verse 4. This love of self, this love of money manifest in these ways will mean that we are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of of God. And that will make itself known this way. We will have the appearance of godliness, but we will deny its power. In other words, there will be lots and lots of people all over the place who will look like Christians, say they're Christians, talk like Christians, <clears throat> but there's no real godliness in their lives. <clears throat> Avoid such people. Do you think they will be in the church? That's exactly where they will be. <laughs> and Paul says, don't, don't cater to them. Don't, don't give them attention or time. Avoid them. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. They're always learning. <clears throat> Never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Just as James and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. They're men who are corrupted in mind and they're disqualified regarding the faith. They don't think clearly and so they don't believe rightly. But they won't get very far. For their folly will be plain to all as was that of these two men. Well, here's the question. How is their folly going to be plain to all? What have we got to do in order to recognize those who are deceived and are deceiving others 
whom Satan will plant right in the middle of the church that will look like Christians, talk like Christians, act like Christians, pretend to be Christians. How will we know? Well, this is the point. Paul says we've got to know the Word of God. We've got to know the Word of God, and to know the Word of God begins by knowing what the Word of God is. I love to read. I read a lot of books. But I know that there's one book that supersedes all other books. I hope you know that too. There's no book that you will read this week that supersedes the Bible. Can I just be honest with you? I can't imagine a person being a Christian and not not loving the Word of God and spending lots and lots of time in the Word of God. How else are you going to hear God speak? This is how He speaks. I want to hear His voice. I want to be familiar with His voice. And I need to then... Spend lots of time and give lots of attention to the Word of God. Paul's going to tell us what that is, and we'll pick up there next time. Father, it's not the world that's lost its way about which I am most concerned. I'm most concerned in our day about churches that have lost and are losing their way. Because somehow we have thought that if we want to reach the world, we've got to use the ways of the world. And so we set aside, in so many churches, we set aside what is so central. We set aside the Bible the teaching of the Bible, reflecting on the Bible, the preaching and teaching of the Bible. God, would you so protect this church that even where there are and will be movements to move us away from the centrality of Scripture, would you raise up leaders in this church and give us eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to understand that We have no hope apart from your word. And keep us faithful in loving your word and learning your word and longing for your word and seeking by your grace to live your word and to bring others to love your word as we do. Thank you for this time together tonight. Bless this week of thanksgiving as we celebrate this week all the blessings that we can't even begin to name, but all the blessings that you have bestowed upon us, none greater, none that even comes close to the blessing that you've given us in Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.